Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shripton. And today, I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and broadcaster and head of Howl and Roar Records, Allison Dorr. When the 2000s started, the most talked-about action comedy was Charlie's Angels. It set the standard for what we were going to expect in that genre for the rest of the decade. Quick cuts, martial arts-inspired action, and pop-driven set pieces. Now, that's the action part of it. The comedy of the decade would be defined in a different way. In fact, we'd see comedy, and what people thought it was, shift quite a bit in the 2000s, in large part because the rise of DVD extra footage, improv comedy, and, of course, the internet. Now, we're going to look at two movies today that blended action with comedy to greater or lesser box office success, but with equal notoriety. Notoriety. But before we get into that, we happen to have a comedy expert on hand to help us look at 2000s comedy. So, Allison, what do you think comedy at the end of the 2000s was defined by, like as like the decade itself? Wow. I know. Wow. Good questions. <laughs> I, I would say this is when there's a level of absurdity and silliness that really like it peaks. Mm-hmm. And so I think people are either on board or not. And and yeah. if you're on board and I'm on board, baby, <laughs> you're having a great time. But I think there's a lot of stuff that got dismissed as being overly silly. Uh, and it's unfortunate. Well, we're going to talk about The Lonely Island later. And I'm actually someone who defends and enjoys Hot Rod. I think Hot Rod is Mm. ridiculous. And uh, I can only begin to explain how much I laugh at the rolling down the hill gag because it's so masterful in the timing where, like, you're laughing and then it stops being funny and then it starts being funny again. And you're like, okay, I get it. The long joke is very difficult to pull off. But when it happens, like, yeah, you have to ride it out for so long Mm. and you have to ride out that period of time. Time where you're like, okay, this is stupid now. And then when it comes back, yeah. that it feels so good. Yeah. 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 They're kind of the kings of, I mean, we'll get into it, but they're the kings of movies that fail, but then people are like, a classic. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody goes to see it. Uh, not necessarily well reviewed, but then uh, it seems to have a cult following immediately. I also think the advent of digital recording now meant that, like, you could let improvers just riff. Sure. And I think that's, like, th- we're seeing this era is kind of the end of, uh, not the end of Apatow. Obviously, Apatow goes on forever. But I think that it kind of reached peak Apatow saturation uh, around now. Uh, we're talking about 2010. But, yeah, it's it's a weird era. And it's also, I mean, the, the we ha- I guess we're, 2010 is new for us. So... It's worth talking about the like number one thing that happened is the 2008 recession, which essentially decimates Hollywood. But Hollywood pretends like eh, nothing's wrong. <laughs> and uh, It ruins all middle budget things, including pretty much all comedies. And like the last gasp of comedy is essentially 2009 is the hangover. And then you kind of have that last R rated like hangover bridesmaids, uh, 21 Jump Street, Ted horrible bosses <laughs> like that's like the last bunch of comedies and now it's just kind of like uh, what did, i wrote down a good fact uh the only two r-rated comedies to earn over 100 million dollars between 2016 and 2019 were bad moms and girls trip wow yeah yeah and pretty much anything was considered a failure that didn't get 100 million dollars because also you know that was the weird recession So they were obsessed with like, uh, yeah, and they were doing lower and lower budgets. The highest budget comedy of those R-rated ones was Ted and Ted was still $65 million, which is like, that's actually surprisingly low budget for a movie that stars a CGI bear. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, it's very weird. I don't know. That is also weird to me because during depressions, the movies that do well tend to be comedies. I mean, that's why Shirley yeah. Temple was a massive star because it was like <laughs> light fluff that you could watch and oh, not worry about standing the in line Temple for bread. It was she, no, it was it was it was all Jane Lynch. Jane Lynch was our modern yeah, Shirley Temple. She was so. upbeat, yes. bright. We were there to see her in every single movie. Blonde, adorable Jane Lynch. Just saying. Okay, I will, that's a enough. great call. Yeah. I will die on that great call. <laughs> yeah, right. but I, yeah, it's just like trying to do anything is kind of the late 2000s, early 2010s comedy. And then we just see it all shift to streaming. So I don't like it. Yeah. I'm not on board for it. But I am glad that we are also seeing like a lot of transitional shifts here. So, I mean, the savvy and self-aware take on the superhero story was also nothing new for this decade. So aside from genre definers like Pixar's The Incredibles, which is 2004, which was like, you know, I think that's kind of the gold standard of this until like Deadpool comes along. There's other movies that decade, like 2008's Will Smith starring Hancock. Uh, and they went out of their mm. way to like spoof the superhero as this public menace. So when Kick-Ass was released in 2000. 10, the jet black premise of a costumed vigilante messing stuff up wasn't new, but the level of violence and, of course, the performance of a 12-year-old Chloe Grace Moretz as Hit Girl got tongues and fingers wagging and made sure the movie made big bucks. Does it deserve its reputation for ludicrous violence by modern standards? We're going to get into that. Kick-ass. Technically a Marvel property. Cam, do you want to lead us through the plot on this one? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, all the technicalities of the Miller verse <laughs> are on. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a fairly sim- simple plot, actually. It's uh, essentially the story of this guy, uh, Dave, who decides he wants to be a superhero, a teenager. A uh, not a, not a necessarily a loser. He kind of just says like he's nobody because he has no actual skills. He's not a nerd particularly. He's not picked on or anything. He just uh, has nothing to do, and he decides to be a superhero. Like you do. Yeah, you know, regular. <laughs> by being a superhero, he both draws the attention of uh, a local criminal, uh, played by Mark Strong, uh, and also draws the attention of two real superheroes who are working in the shadows, who are uh, Big Daddy and Hit Girl, uh, played by Nicolas Cage and Chloe Grace Moretz, who are, you know, Batman-style vengeance superheroes. Um, and then through various machinations, uh, there is also another <laughs> superhero slash villain, uh, who gets into the mix too, while they all kind of, uh, go around killing all sorts of people, basically, <laughs> violently. Extremely violently. Yeah. This is also, I think, one of the first times I remember seeing CGI blood. Like, there's a lot mm, of CGI sure. blood here to kind of increase it. Because I know there, I looked it up. I'm like, are squibs dangerous? And the answer is kind of. So yeah. I was like, I think All they're right, just well, expensive, honestly. The reason I think you see more CGI blood is it's, it is legitimately cheaper. Interesting. Uh, well, yeah. Allison, you got super excited when we proposed these movies to you. So, what is your relationship to Kick Ass? So I have loved Kick-Ass since the first time I saw it. I think it's so fun. Look, I love violence. I, uh, <laughs> yes. What can I say? You are a big action movie fan, too. It's worth saying, considering yes. both of these are comedies. Yeah, I love action movies. I love great fight sequences. And in rewatching this too, and Hit Girl, I'm sorry, anytime a woman kicks ass, I'm on board. She's 11. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes, 100%. I want to watch that. And she is the the greatest superhero in the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. she's the one. I mean, they're not, they're just people. They don't have powers. Yeah. But, but she is the coolest part of this movie and what I love about it is I just happened to last week rewatch Kingsman the Secret Service yeah and you can see watching kick ass the building blocks of the action scenes that were coming in Matthew Vaughn's future mm-hmm. and so it's really interesting I also used to live across the street from the dip and sip and it has <laughs> a major uh, scene yeah. in this movie and it doesn't exist anymore so you know I was talking with people uh, yesterday about this movie, and it was funny because so many people experienced... There's a lot of movies shot in Toronto. Like, it's not weird to have a movie shot in Toronto, but this movie is kind of set in any town USA, so it doesn't really matter. So they don't really bother hiding a lot of Toronto. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people... I I was like, this is the one time I've been in a movie theater where people cheered because they go to the movie theater we were at. (laughs) So everybody went... And my friend said, completely different screening. She was like, yeah, everybody cheered in mind too because like there's a part where they go into the movie theater you are sitting in 
Uh, and it was just like, yeah, it's it's unusual to get that much Toronto. Uh, and also wild that this movie is half shot in England, half shot in Toronto, which is crazy. Well, like it's all British actors, mostly. All self-funded as well that you would bother to do that. Like yeah. Toronto makes sense because it's cheaper to film, especially in 2008, 2009, when Toronto actually mm. didn't have that much of a film scene. Like um, it's yes. really only in like the years afterwards as the uh, Americans were kind of falling down. Schwarzenegger was in power between like 2006 mm. up until about 2000. And he run a, ran a very, very successful campaign to keep filming in California. So the yeah. Canadian film industry actually really suffered as a direct result because we weren't getting all those big budget American productions. So it made sense for uh, Matthew Vaughn to then film in Toronto because it would have been nice and cheap. And our crews are amazing for that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but the England stuff, it's like he wanted to go home on the weekends and see his kids. Like I'm presuming yeah, well, we, I was going to say, we, uh, Allison, we've done a pr- prior Matthew Vaughn film and he has a very fast fascinating career partially because he i believe is just an independently wealthy fellow he's married to claudia schiffer uh he is the illegitimate child of a very fancy british lord um uh, i did not know that i love this backstory Uh, i mean (laughs) truly read his backstory because it's fascinating because he is actually his vaughn is his last name uh because it was presumed that his father was actor robert vaughn and uh they actually never revealed to robert vaughn while he was alive that he was not his child because he was essentially his dad but yes but his actual dad is like a British lord. It's a whole thing. Let's uh, make but, a movie about that. Yeah, it's it's very fascinating. He also was like, he was Guy Ritchie's producer when he was in his 20s, which is wild. So he was super successful. Yeah. And then he did his own movie, Lair Cake, which gave us Daniel yeah. Craig. Um, yes. And that's what kind of launched him. Yeah. And then we talked about, he was supposed to be, uh, he was supposed to direct X-Men The Last Stand. But at the time he had very young children and he decided that he did not want to leave England. So, and, and I think you see in all his movies, I think just about even up through the Kingsman, most of them are filmed in England mm-hmm. uh, because I think he does not want to leave his family, which is interesting for a male director to kind of make that. Uh, I love it. Thing. Yeah. Make that, <laughs> stamp of whatever yeah and it's also why i think he works very closely with jane goldman which we'll get into too who they they seem to have a relationship where she even kind of directs and but he's uh he's also a guy who says like uh, stuff with women is like not my thing and, and neil gaiman set them up as like a team uh, which is interesting for Stardust because they wrote and directed Stardust together. So that's because he couldn't quite figure out, you know, because that's such a female centric script mm. with, you know, the the Michelle Pfeiffer character and the Claire Danes character and everything revolving around those women and the witches. And he was like, I don't know what to do with this. He's like, I can film all the actions you want. Robert De Niro as a pirate. I got it. But, you know, yeah. I don't know what to do with the central core messaging of this. So Jane Goldman came in and did that. And then it was like a no brainer for her to come in and write all of Hit Girl. And I think oh, that's yeah. why Hit Girl is so strong. But that also having been said, I think there's a couple things here that are handled in ways where I'm like, whose call was that? Um, like, mm. especially there's a very super baddie in quality. Like, I find su- watching super bad now. I think there's parts of it that are amazing and parts of it that are incredibly cringy, especially with the way he spe- they speak to the girls and the way they treat the girls and the way the girls are represented in it. And in this here, it's very interesting because you watch his relationship with Katie, the girl he has the crush on, and he's pretending to be gay and in these extremely vulnerable situations with her. And she's fine with this at the end and is like, I think you're cute too let's do it so but that doesn't happen in the comic books in the comic books he confesses to her and she kicks him to the curb so it's like why was that choice made there to make it more romantic and more like um acceptable behavior that someone would be okay with that sort of deception yeah that's interesting i didn't fully understand uh her reaction either because yeah you'd be real mad that he lied (laughs) and they kind of give her a beat of being Mm. mad and then she's like no dave you can stay um but i I also just sort of got the impression that it's like, hey, listen, this this storyline is not the most important thing in the movie. Like they were just kind of like, whatever, uh, whatever. We want them like they have to be together because it adds weight to him getting kidnapped. But at the same time, like I don't actually care about this exchange. I mean, we we don't know anything about Katie. She's no. ends up dating that like gang guy who <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How did she didn't she work in like like a like a methadone clinic or something and that's how she met him? Yes, but they okay. never go is I'm sorry, she ended up dating that guy. <laughs> like no. on every level it makes no sense. They give us no backstory on it. Like the impression I got is just like the messaging is Katie's not that important. Ah, yes. Like she's mm. just sort of driving uh, kind of kick-ass's motivation. So let let's just 
Wait, let's not do a big thing with her being mad. That's that's mm-hmm. which uh you know, yeah, as a woman I go, I don't love that, but uh as a an action movie watcher I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. let's get to the the kidnapping and the the big scene. <laughs> I want to see I mean? the jetpacks, I want to see the rocket launchers, yeah. that's what I'm here for. I actually don't want to see the jump. <laughs> but that's a personal thing. Yeah. All right. Now, Allison, which ending, spoiler alert, there are two different endings here. The first ending featured Hit Girl drop kicking uh, the guy off the roof. The second mm. one was the rocket launcher jetpack. Which one mm. would you rather have? Drop kick. I hate the, ro- the jetpack. I hate it. It looks dumb. When they fly away at the end, I'm like, what? Uh, it, that is the one part of this movie that I absolutely can't stand. And overall, I think this movie is fun. I like the tone. I like all that stuff. But the second that jetpack comes into play, I go, what, what just happened? It, so much of this movie, in a sense, is grounded in reality. Like, it's these are regular people. These are all this kind of stuff. And the jetpack takes it to a weird level. I feel like. And it's one thing when Kick-Ass kind of rises up and through that big picture window and, and saves the day. Um, that's that's not too bad. But yeah, then when he picks her up and they fly across the city, I honestly want to rip my hair out. I'm like, <laughs> someone set me on fire. I can't deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's it's interesting. They do change. Uh, like the, the comics aren't too different uh, for this first movie. But two big changes they have is like one, Davis and Kickass is kind of a character who's like, uh, like Ishmael in <laughs> Moby Dick. Mm. He's like there, but it's pretty much the story of uh, Big Daddy and Hit Girl. But the biggest change they make is that um, in the comics, uh, Nicholas Cage's character, Big Daddy, is not a cop and actually has no justification. He's a guy who kidnapped his own daughter. And decided to just train her to be a evil, like a hit person. And he arbitrarily chooses the bad guy just to give her a nemesis. Hmm. Um, So he's kind of like bad. Uh, So that's the one interesting thing they peel away is I think the comic is Mark Miller saying like all superheroes are not a good idea. Uh, Whereas this kind of says like, well, but yeah, some superheroes are justified. Some vigilantism is awesome, Uh, which it makes a more fun movie. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But yeah, it's, that's like the one kind of big change. And and yeah, so in the end, in the, even in the comics, Kick-Ass is just kind of standing there doing nothing while Hit Girl does everything. But I also feel like that's the rehabilitation of the male dud, which is a very common trope throughout the entire 2000s comedy scene. It's what every Judd Apatow sure. movie is about. And the same thing is happening here, where in, as you said, in the comic book, he's much more of a dud. Like, he's not really a hero. He's mm. a total goober. And here they were really doing... And a bit of a psycho, too. Yeah. Like, it's he's a bit scary. He's a bit of a, like, a Travis Bickle. Ah, uh, gotcha. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So it seems interesting here that they would want to to give those elements. And I find the same thing. I'm not a big fan of the Kingsman movies just because I find them a little too a little too much for my for my personal taste. I like my violence raid. I like raid violence. I like just watching people do whacked out shit. The gun I know what it is, it's the gun violence. Gun violence isn't my thing. I prefer the martial arts mm. violence. I think that's why. Not to say anything against Kingsman. I get why people like them. I understand why they're very popular. Sure. Um but I think what's interesting here is that you're seeing a need to make this person likable and I don't know if this was like made into an HBO show or whatever that you would now do that like you would definitely now make him more anti-hero they made a I think not smart choice to hew very close to the comics for Kick-Ass 2 and created a movie that I think nobody liked Mm -hmm. because it is full of like sexual assault and grim death and uh yeah it's just not fun <laughs> in, in a way that's like the question oh. i have for you guys though is that um graphic novels tend to be so much more full of the ta- those taboos i think about shows like mm. preacher you know which when you watch mm. it when they translate it into the television show it's still got some of that stuff but it's definitely not as whacked out as the graphic novels are um and in the boys is also the kind of the same thing mm. Both Garth Ennis, both Whack Doodle. Yeah. So why are we more comfortable looking at that in a comic book form than in a film form? Why is that? Is just because the audiences aren't as broad? I, I would say, yeah, I would say 
comic book audiences are more niche, right? And mm. and they know what they're looking for. And and also on screen, I think there's something about watching people. It's the same reason you can get away with stuff in animation that you can't in live action, right? Mm. It's it's somewhere it crosses a palatable line. And I think in Kick Ass, the choice to make Big Daddy give him that justification and still mm. make him be like a loving father in many senses of the word. And because we don't get the impression in the movie that he's necessarily a, a bad father. Like, he loves her. Yeah. He takes care of her. Yeah. He's just also training her for what he, he sees the world as, right? Which mm. is uh, this horrible place that will take advantage of you and he's going to make sure that doesn't happen to her. And I think it's... Considering how much backlash they got ab against this, like, 11-year-old girl killing all these people, if they hadn't added that element of, like, her dad's doing this out of mm -hmm. love, not just because he's crazy, I think yeah. it, it would have been much bigger backlash even than it was. Well, yeah. the the main only reason why they couldn't get studio funding is they brought this to multiple studios who were like, we will fund this, but Hit Girl has to be 25 minimum. We will yeah. not do this with a child. And so that was kind of his line in the sand where he was like, well, the story doesn't work if that's yes. the case. And of course, they wanted to make her sexy and, you know, all this stuff because that's Gross. what you do. But um, but what I do appreciate is they don't sexualize the child. Like, I'm yes. like, thank God, because they, that is definitely a direction we have seen people do. <laughs> so it's I mean, like, they do have yeah. Evan Peters say that he'll save himself for her <laughs> <laughs> no but that is yeah. so funny and yeah. then uh when clark is like that's no yeah. you're not like it's <laughs> and and because it's all in clark's reaction too is mm -hmm. is that wait is clark his real name or yeah, is clark that Duke, yeah okay i was like i couldn't remember if that was just his name from The Office. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of specifically 2010 stars, Clark yes. Duke. Yeah. Uh, his reaction is so is great because he's all of us mm -hmm. in the, what are you talking about? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's also, to me, also he, you know, she is incredible. And mm -hmm. so it's like, yeah, well, you want to wait till she's an adult. That's your business, Evan <laughs> yes. Chloe Grace Moretz is doing her own stunts for like 90% of it. Occasionally it is a dude in a wig and a dress and you can tell. Yes. But, you know, a la Flashdance. But like 90% of it is her. It's her doing the butterfly knife. When you go and watch the behind the scenes stuff of her learning how to do it, it is wild. And you also see her rapport with the rest of the stunt team and the stunt choreographer mm. and like her level of professionalism, her listening, her discipline. It's like... This is insane. But I think the thing, the weird thing is that, yeah, people reacted poorly to the the fact that, that she was doing all this violent stuff, but they really, really hated that she said the word cunt. Okay, you cunts. Let's see what you can do now. Like, that was the no-fly zone that wasn't happening. And her mother was the one who was like, just let her say the word. She'll do it, you know? And it yeah. was like... And it was yeah. awesome! <laughs> Why yeah, can't people guys... appreciate when stuff is awesome? <laughs> this kid is better than all of us. Just let her go out there and be awesome. Also, this... everyone calm down about yeah. the word cunt. People get so <laughs> worked up. Take it down a notch. Her mother was right. This is incredible. She yeah. did make her career weirdly, even before this, in essentially being the child in adult movies. And and she is the same year in Let Me In. This was like the real uh, coming out year for Chloe Grace Moretz. But yeah, it's it, it's funny because she's like the, she's the kid in a lot of horror movies and stuff before this. So you're like, oh, I guess that they kind of knew. I think she's in 500 Days of Summer as a kid, too. And I yeah. seem to remember that she's like a maybe foul-mouthed child in that, too. That was kind of her niche at the time. Currently, she also seems incredibly well-adjusted. So it is one of those things yeah. where, like, sometimes you, like, let's you talk about what? Corey Feldman. She, you know, you see someone yeah. doing these roles and you're like, oh, you're not okay. But, like, she is so well-adjusted and, like, picks her roles very well The only thing and... I would say is I think she has, like, she's a little too slick. Like, mm. I think I think she doesn't get right. the roles anymore, partially because she's just, like, too professional, yeah. you know? And, and and I think she was miscast a bit when she got famous. Like, something like Carrie, I think, was pretty brutal and not her fault. Uh, it was yeah. just very bad casting. But, yeah, it's she's she's interesting. I wonder about her, like, the person I always, I, I think I compare her to is, like, Henry Thomas, who kind of just now has a career again and you're like mm -hmm. oh cool henry thomas but there was like 30 years of henry thomas unlearning being like a slick good child star that everybody loved 
Two things I will say, like she did seem to have a pretty seamless transition into more adult roles, which mm -hmm. doesn't happen very much. Um, and the other thing, I see what you're saying about the Henry Thomas thing, but also, and guys, this is going to be a hot take. We might get hate mail. Henry <laughs> Thomas is not a great actor. Oh, I like him in stuff <laughs> lately. Chloe Grace Moritz is very, Ooh. very good. Okay, well, uh, it's not that he's I don't not, know that I would... I, I don't think I've seen her be a great actor, I will say. He's fine, but like mm. Hill House, even I recently, unfortunately, rewatched Legends of the Fall. Like, it's mm. not... Oh, Legends of the Fall is pre what I'm great. saying is good, good Henry Thomas, if that makes you feel uh, better. That's bad Henry Thomas the, era. What's the uh, vampire... Hill, oh, yeah, Hill House did, guy did it. it. Yeah, I know. What you uh, mean, like he's the, not he, Henry Thomas isn't bad, but I'm not yeah. like yes, he's the best. I'm just like ah, oh, remember my childhood. I love Henry yes. Thomas. I also feel like Chloe Grace Moretz is unfortunately saddled with the fact that she still looks like a teenager. Yes, she's yeah. like deep in her twenties and looks like she's 16 years old, and yes. there's nothing she can do about that. Particularly, she needs I to be on a violent high school show. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Is that she Get can her do in her yellow stunts. jackets? Just I will say she did. Uh, she did a movie I didn't love called Shadow in the Cloud that some people really did love, where she plays like a like a, a fighter pilot. It's a the Gremlin on the Wing movie where ah. she's like fighting a Gremlin in a World War II fighter plane. And, <laughs> I, and I think that that was now. yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of cool. It didn't get a good release. I really did not like it, but I know a lot of people really loved it, and I do think that it was a very good attempt by her to kind of be a uh, like a lady action star, like p play into what she's good at and be like a bit of, a bit more adult. But um, yeah, it's still it's still a problem. But uh, yeah, you're when you're stuck like that, it's like uh, Haley Joel Osment, who I think is yeah. has now become like a very interesting comedy actor too. But he he just looks like a weird child <laughs> with a beard, yeah. and there's nothing he can do about it. And he's lead into being a weirdo, which is like yeah, fair. Him and Elijah Wood, yeah. Oh, I love Elijah Wood. He, uh, the weird thing is Leo is one that I always find odd because when you think about mm. it, like he also has that baby face, but for like Martin Scorsese, just for like 15 years was like, pretend he looks like a grown up though. Yeah. And, and yeah. it all kind of worked out. And I think yes. it works for Leo because Leo does smug so well, mm. and so much of his stuff is smug, and uh, yes. those other and uh, like he plays antiheroes. That's what he does, and every single yeah. one of his uh, adults is a thing. And so like you're you're okay that he's weird looking. Whereas the uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and uh, Haley Joel Osment, all these these tri named humans are yes. uh, very charming. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. something lovable and warm about them. Even they when they're look doing like terrible things. Sweet little babies. Yeah. yeah, but I, I think it's also interesting to go back to like, yeah, she's a like a pretty significant uh, physical actor. And I wonder if there's a possibility. Of course, women don't get many options, but like the well, guy she's working with here, the the main stunt coordinator, Bradley James Allen, was like he's a protege of Jackie Chan. And you see her pulling all that off. He uh, unfortunately recently died uh, during the pandemic, mm. uh, but he also did Scott Pilgrim's action the same year. Yeah, all of Kingsman, yeah. We don't do action like this anymore. Our action mm. doesn't look like this. You don't see yeah. people 90% of the time, like especially in the Marvel movies, you don't see people doing actual stunts. No. Yeah. Well, you see all the, the quick cuts and things. Yeah. People to learn it anymore, and that's why Simu Lu did so good, because he's already a stuntman. That's yeah. why right now, as we speak, the big movie is uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Keiki yeah. Kwan, same thing. He was a stuntman. So suddenly he reappears after 20 years and <laughs> does an amazing Kung Fu scene because he's been a stuntman this whole time. But they won't teach like they talk about Chloe yeah. Grace Moretz, I think, did four months of training. It's like yeah. they just don't they don't do that anymore. Even talking about like uh, Bring It On where they sent them to like boot camp for cheerleaders. Right. Yeah. Like, they, yeah, that just doesn't happen. It's another great movie. Can I and I don't know how you guys will feel about this, but sure. I want to shout out Nicolas Cage. Uh, yeah, I, of please <laughs> do. This performance yeah. is, uh, I think, really interesting. I like the variation of his voice when he's in his Big Daddy outfit mm -hmm. versus out of it. It's, the Adam it's West voice. The That's Adam right. West voice, yep. yes. You need us. Put on your website that you're on vacation. We'll find you. Hit girl, back to headquarters. And uh, the it's, you know what? This is a lower key role for him that I think would have been very easy for an actor to go super big with. And the fact that it was like originally going to be Brad Pitt, it's like, no, that would have yeah. been a mistake. Like, this is one of the only times I will support casting Nicolas Cage <laughs> over Brad Pitt. Yeah. Um, and so for a guy who I think so frequently goes over the top when it's not called mm -hmm. for 
to show that restraint in this role, I think, good for you. I have hot takes on Nicolas Cage. My specific hot take on Nicolas Cage is he needs people to stand up to him to give him his best performances. So, for example, Moonstruck, uh, knowing Mm. that both Norman Jewison and Cher were like, look at me, look at me, bring it in, bring it in. You can do the weird, like, tooth thing. That's fine. But, you know, when it comes to the emotion, you're here with me. And so I think the same thing happens is when he has people to stand up to him and say, okay, you can do this, but this is where the leash ends. And because he's such a good actor he understands the range of his leash mm-hmm. so when you tell him the leash goes here that's where he takes it and he stops yeah i think that they, they also it sounded like they crafted the character and then kind of let him do things in the scenes and stuff that they yeah. were really impressed with but i bet you something like the fact that he has a a very uh like specific kind of mustache that is also visible in his costume because he I feel extended like it that's like part of his costume yeah, pure, yeah. pure Nicolas Cage yeah that's yeah, that, uh, that seems like a thing he would make up and I love the, there was the the mention of Christopher Mintz Blast where he's like one time he just did a totally wacky thing and Nicolas Cage is like yeah you should do that and he's like in himself he's like I can't do that <laughs> he's, like, he's like I did the dumbest thing as a joke to make Aaron Taylor Johnson laugh and Nicolas Cage is like that was some inspired choices <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. yeah do the weirdest yeah. but he's also at an interesting point in his career because 2007 is National Treasure and that's when he goes like big budget astronomical mm-hmm. but 2009 is when he gets into his financial issues and that's when he sues his money manager, et cetera, sure. after, you know, buying pyramids and T-Rex yeah. dolls, et cetera. So this is kind of the beginning of him taking everything so he can very responsibly pay off all of his debts, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's in, so you can see why he would take this, but also why Jim Carrey is the logical replacement for him mm-hmm. in a way, like is and isn't, right? Of like what that character is now gone. And how do you replace that energy with wackier energy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Jim Carrey regretted it. He did. Yes, yeah. all that. Well, that was also, I think he said that there was another school shooting, of course, yeah. that came out during Kick-Ass 2, and then he kind of recanted. And yeah, it's a, it's complicated. All this it's complicated. Stuff is complicated. Don't watch right? Kick-Ass 2. It's, it's not complicated. <laughs> it's a bad film. Uh, I, yeah. Well, something I do want to talk about just for a second is there's this weird thing that happened is this is the same year as James Gunn's film Super, which mm-hmm. if you people have done like side by side comparisons of it. And so like Elliot Page also plays a younger foul mouth sidekick uh, to an older Rain Wilson's character who is like an older version of uh, of Kick-Ass. Um, they are fighting kind of the same sort of villain. They're both dealing with like feelings of inadequacy, except for one's as a teen, one is as, as a 40 something um even the shots are like side by side the like fighting people in a in a parking lot and like a bunch of thugs like it's wild how close together they are and you would think hey were they filming it like in in were they aware of each other both mark miller and james gunn say we had no idea the other person was doing this at this time both of them like each other's movies and both of them respect each other's movies and there's no bad blood which is wild to me yeah. that that can happen like that's one of those like collective unconsciousness weird things and i think it's also that the, the, the kick-ass comic was more or less unreleased they started making the movie before the comic particularly was the big, idea was pitched to yeah. um matthew vaughn being like hey this is kind of the, a movie i would love to make with you and mm. matthew vaughn was like yeah this is cool let me know when you have like the whole thing yeah. so they were kind of developed simultaneously weird James Gunn, one of his first uh, non-trauma movies is called The Specials, and it's kind of the same vibe. It's a like a down-to-earth kind of pathetic group of superheroes. All I remember is there's a guy that everyone calls Minute Man, but he's actually called Minute Man. <laughs> he gets mad about it because he shrinks. They're like, yeah, Minute Man. He's like, Minute Man. I only remember that. But uh, but yeah, it's interesting. There's Mark Miller, the guy who made the Kick-Ass comic, is kind of an interesting because he's like. I think arguably one of the biggest influences of the modern uh, superhero movies, but he also um, he's a real edgelord <laughs> and like his <laughs> comics don't adapt that well. Kick-Ass is probably the best adaptation closest to his comics. Wanted is also by him. Jupiter's Legacy, the Netflix show that nobody liked, uh, is by him. Super Crooks, I think, is also by him. But yeah, he the interesting thing is he reworked a lot of uh, Marvel comics into what essentially is the basis for what our our current marvel universe which is like kind of treating it very with a lot of trauma grounding it treating it like it was post 9-11 so it was very much like these these people all this this disaster stuff is real and i wonder that yeah maybe that vibe was just in comics and and the thought of a crazy guy hitting people was 
big. I don't know. Well, just as we kind of wrap up this segment, Matthew Vaughn, like I said, the thing that that sunk the film, the thing that sunk the funding with all the studios was Hit Girl. But then the thing that got it picked up was Hit Girl because mm-hmm. they showed a bunch of clips at Comic Con, which wasn't really being done, especially at that length. So this was all independently yeah. funded by Matthew Vaughn. I think he took the car, he took the the red mist car as his recompense, which is a three hundred thousand dollar car, because of course. But uh, but yeah, when they showed these clips specifically of Hit Girl, like killing the drug dealers and of course saying the c word and all that kind of stuff, the audience went bananas, and that's when um, Lionsgate was like, "Oh, we want this," and picked it up for distribution. So what you know, it's the mm-hmm. kind of the one one side and the other. And Matthew Vaughn says that according to Hollywood, uh, this film was the wrong move because no one wanted to make it. And that got me even more excited because it seemed so obvious to me. Now, I'm genuinely curious. How often do we think people's instincts in that way actually pay off and the movie does well? Wow. I, you know, it's hard to know. I do think that the people with the money, executives mm. and studios, are most often wrong. Um, and that might be bias on my part. I feel like, uh, they want to be very safe. I don't know. They fully have an idea of what audiences want. I think they want something that looks like something they've already seen. Um, but I think, yeah, there are definitely artists who will pick a hill to die on and then they're just dead on a hill. Yeah. yeah. Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> we hardly sure, knew yeah. Yes. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. Matthew Vaughn's an odd guy, too, because uh, he does take these swings. And we talked about, like, Layer Cake was a hit, but Stardust was a huge whiff. This yeah. was kind of a guarantor, but it's still he still had to make X-Men First Class before he could kind of do whatever he wanted. And, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, he talks about uh, there's a great uh, oral history, Allison, where he talks about he went to a, a card game with Mark Strong and Dexter Fletcher and stuff and showed them like a pre reel. And they were all like, whatever, man. <laughs> they like, yeah. it at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very And funny. I'll say with Matthew Vaughn, first of all, he criminally underuses Mark Strong. Like, Mark Strong, this was not in Kick-Ass – this what a boring character in in hit uh, kingsman secret service what are you doing you may don't do that to him but i will also say so the first kingsman secret service great mm-hmm. so fun mm-hmm. so awesome the other two i'm fine thanks get out of here so <laughs> yeah. we can't he he can't fully be trusted you yeah know. yeah it's, <laughs> it's it's fair he's he's kind of all over i will say if you haven't seen stardust that is i think his mark strong showpiece where mark strong is kind of the villain um mm. along with michelle pfeiffer but yeah, yeah, he's a he's an interesting guy. And I mean, he's he continues to be a producer for all his buddies like he produced Rocket Man for Dexter Fletcher, you know, Bloodshot. You probably watched Bloodshot with Vin Diesel. Did you watch that, Allison? Where he's kind of a robot. I have not seen it yet, oh, but it's what? definitely yeah, it's definitely on my Come list. On. It's definitely Okay, okay. And I will say Matthew Vaughn's next film is a, a, a really high-profile Netflix one that has a little trailer that people go say what where uh, henry cavill has a crazy flat top and is playing some sort of maybe comedy spy called argyle nobody knows what's coming with that movie Delicious. and i'm very fascinated because yeah it's like what <laughs> I- i'm already on board that's what i want a trailer to be for me is intriguing i don't want to know th- i'm not one of those people i want to know the whole story i don't read yes, the last I- page first like give yeah. me the taste of like i'm sorry what is happening right now like i want i want yeah. that of like nicholas cage is gonna do what now that's what i want thank you very mm. much all right as we wind this up um i've been really enjoying ending things with like my favorite ebert quotes from like the reviews if there's like a real juicy one and he has a fantastic quote from this which is let's just say you're a big fan of the original comic book and you think the movie does it justice you know what you inhabit a world i am not very interested in he gave this one star and i love how catty he gets you know what i will say that again the same friend who said i cheered when i saw this she's like i remember ebert hated that movie oh, yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah interesting all right well when we come back we're going to be dealing with more adult stars doing very very raunchy things and i'm sure at least one or two of your comedy favorites are right in there it's mcgruber and it's coming up after the break
The Lonely Island made their imprint on comedy when in 2005, they were noticed by one Lauren Michaels, who hired Yorma Takone, Akiva Schaefer, and Andy Samberg as performers, writers, and producers. They ran around some hallways with laser cats while Lauren Michaels poo-pooed them, and SNL Digital Shorts was born. And for a few years, the world joyously sang about being on boats and putting genitals in boxes. But could their lightning-in-a-bottle energy translate to a feature-length movie? Well, for their first movie, 2007's Hot Rod, the answer was no. But that wasn't based around an existing SNL sketch with a proven track record of hilarity. So Yorma co-wrote and directed, Akiva produced, and Andy Samberg went off and did his own thing. Now let's find out what happened with MacGruber, shall we? Allison, do you want to give us just a quick plot summary on this one? All right. MacGruber, as we all know, is the man, MacGyver-inspired man <laughs> who... Uh, takes small objects and maybe foils the plot or maybe blows up 200 people uh, in casualties. But this movie kicks off, it, we believe MacGruber's been dead for 10 years. Uh, Powers Booth knows that's not true. And they go and find MacGruber meditating in a small town. Uh, but his mortal enemy, um, Kunth, played by Val Kilmer, is back, has a nuclear warhead, and it is on American soil. They call him the greatest, and it's interesting because it's, I guess eventually he gets the job done, but he <laughs> makes a lot of mistakes along the way. And they know that at the beginning, but they're still like, we need the best of the best. And uh, MacGruber comes out of retirement to reluctantly work with Ryan Phillippe and bring mm -hmm. back Vicky St. Elmo to save America. Vicky St. Elmo is up there with one of the greatest character names, along with Fern <laughs> yeah. Mayo, who we also talked about yes, this season. Yeah. <laughs> very excellent name. Yeah. I, all the names are very good. The, yeah, it's a weird movie. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's interesting because I think SNL humor in general is one of those like either you're really tapped into it or you're not. And it mm -hmm. shifts so wildly based on the chemistry of the cast. And Allison, as you were saying, this was like a time of like extreme silliness where like mm -hmm. either this is your sense of humor or it's not. And this is a film that taps into that extreme silliness so hard. And I think these guys were very much like like chocolate and the peanut butter at the time, like those digital shorts were so different from the typical SNL humor and that's what and I think Lorne Michaels knew that which is kind of fascinating to know that he he was like make a MacGruber movie when's more MacGruber <laughs> like Lorne Michaels was the number one MacGruber guy which is kind of wild it's insane to be honest with you and I remember when I heard this movie was being made I was not on board and mm. The first time I watched it, I was like, it was fine, but I can't believe we made a whole movie. Now I'm at the point where I've seen it so many times. I'm like, this movie is genius. And Will Forte is an unsung hero. And everyone gather around MacGruber. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of had to grow on me, but it really did. Now, Allison, you're not alone in that. This has some big champions. Uh, in, uh, Adam Sandler has regular watch parties of this where he just invites people over and they watch it together. My favorite, Love though, it. is that Christopher Nolan is apparently an enormous fan of this to the point where Anne Hathaway would talk about when she was working on uh, on The Dark Knight with him that she knew he was in a good mood when he would quote MacGruber yes. while he was yes. directing. So yes. Yorma Takone, uh, was, when they found out they were going to get the TV show, was uh, and, and was like so excited about the idea Christopher Nolan was into this, um, invited him to the pilot read-through. and was like, if you can come to the table read, that'd be awesome. We'd love to have you. And he said he sent me the most amazing email. Here it is. He says, though I can't be there in person to watch you take the first step of your odyssey, know that my spirit soars with you. And whilst it's perhaps unfair to add to the great sense of responsibility you must already feel, I am duty-bound to tell you the world is waiting the world is watching. This is how much Christopher Nolan loves MacGruber. Yeah. I love it. And can I say, I feel like the series, and I always get nervous because I was like, okay, I feel like they did it with the movie, what's happening with the series. But like right from the opening where Maya Rudolph's The Ghost of Casey sings this song in the series to catch everybody up with what happened in the movie. I was like, this is genius. They did it. I loved the show. I, I, I haven't I hope watched it gets the show yet, I'll, I'll admit. Uh, apparently, they are actually quite bullish to make a sequel film. 
And okay. I, it seems like the if the if the show won any favor, it's probably to make them another movie. Fair. Now, the choice that I think is interesting is having seen some of the like the shorts of it. It is very clearly MacGyver, and what MacGyver yes. does is he mm. takes little pieces of whatever and he transforms them into something that makes them bigger than the sum of their parts, and then saves the day. That is not what the movie is about. The movie no. is a spoof on like classic 80s action films. And yes. just having watched Rambo 2 for the uh, for the TV show, I'm like, oh, this is Rambo 2, which now watching it, it's like a parody of itself because it's been mm-hmm. parried so many times. Yeah. That's what they're doing, including like the whole gathering our team business is like it's almost pitch perfect of exactly what that would look like. My favorite part of the movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. Together, the team is very good, and it's uh, all wrestlers that yes, I know and yes. love. <laughs> that and then... though is like the Ryan Murphy equivalent, where Ryan Murphy is like, "Let's get a bunch of older women who have not had roles yeah. forever, but they're amazing, and put them in a movie." That is what Yorma Takone is doing. Yes. <laughs> He's like, "Who's some wrestlers I loved as a child? Get them in there." I will say they they kind of are like, "Well, we decided to make it just like a general '80s action movie, and like trying to like sh- make our favorite movies, and that's our touchstone." But I will say I can read between the lines of that oral history and i think it's pretty clear that the creators of macgyver were fine with mcgruber the sketch they were fine with richard dean anderson being in a pepsi ad at the super bowl but i think when they started to make a mcgruber movie that they were kind of breathing down their necks That's like the you line. can only parody so close because that that when they talk about the celery joke because like I, I guess that there really was a carrot in MacGyver, and the joke was originally a carrot, and they said that yeah, there was literally a back and forth legally about their ability to use a carrot in MacGyver. So something tells me that they also had to make it a bit more of a general parody to not piss off MacGyver, uh, the creators of MacGyver, and pay them anything essentially. I, I mean that's insane, and I get intellectual mm. property, and and people get very precious about it, especially yeah. in Hollywood. Um, but that's hysterical to me and i I think but they don't need it right because here's the thing the whole point of mcgruber is that he takes three things but they don't he does not put them together to equal more than the sum of their parts and it very rarely works and so it's you you don't need that kind of to be the plot point it's more about who mcgruber is as a person which is like a giant idiot who sometimes gets the job done I also think it's very interesting to know like where where these guys went with their comedy. So like the one of the co-writers is John Solomon, who's kind of more behind the scenes. Uh, but he co-created Last Man on Earth, which I think you you like you can really see the through line from MacGruber movie to Last Man on Earth. Yes. But the the one the other one that John Solomon did, where you're like, oh, I see this 100 percent, is I think he should leave. He writes that oh, with Tim yeah. Robinson, mm. so it's like MacGruber just is that like he's the guy pushing the door the wrong way, like he's always a low status guy freaking out <laughs> and and just trying to maintain a shred of dignity. And you're like, oh, now I kind of get. And, and I think I, I enjoy this movie more seeing it as the starting point of that kind of humor than necessarily as like a standalone film. For but instance. I think that's what Will Forte does so well. And they're tapping into mm. if you're making him the centerpiece of this film. And I mean, that's why mm. he would go on to star in Nebraska, which is like about the saddest human beings in the world. Mm. Um, you know, you're watching him just debase himself over and over and over again. But he does it with such conviction and enthusiasm that that's where you're like, I, I, I think it can go either way in your reaction to it, though. Like you can either be totally turned off by this human being or you can be on board and be like, that's really funny. Like there's sure. It's kind of a I think it makes it a complicated character where they're super smart in this movie and also in the TV series is balancing him out with the an incredible villain. And Val Kilmer is so good in this movie. He is so delicious. He gets it. He knows what's happening. And he's sort of like, yeah, he is the calm. Like, again, normally the opposite. It would be the hero is the the calm thoughtful one who kind of has his moment of breaking down and in this case it's Val Kilmer's character and he is delicious and then in the TV show it's Billy Zane and it's yeah. they it grounds it to a point where when Will Forte might be getting too much it's like then Val Kilmer comes in and he's so slick yeah and just reigns uh, it and in. I mean even he has the good bit with uh Kristen Wiig and and she's like, yeah, and I'll tell you where to put it. And he's like, where? And she's just like, up, up your butt. <laughs> yeah, it's, your but yeah, he's, you're right. It's, there's something, I also think it's an interesting time for comedy because 
like normally and even if you think of Val Kilmer, you know, in the 80s or 90s, this would have been like a Zucker Abram Zucker thing, like top secret like he did. Mm-hmm. But I think like the uh, the scary movies of the 2000s and then had gone into epic movie date movie, but like they had really run into the ground the idea of a joke a minute parody, which is kind of unfortunate and kind of wild. Like, why aren't people funding that now? Like, I would definitely sit down to a scary movie nine or whatever the hell. I, I don't care. But uh, yeah, they, they'd really run that into the ground. That was dead. That was dead, dead, dead. Like the last scary movie, I think, was 2006 or seven. Uh, the last real one <laughs> and uh yeah so they can't kind of do that which is what you would expect would be a joke a minute sort of mm-hmm. uh naked gun parody so they're they have to come up with something new which is this weird thing of essentially a straight action movie <laughs> where everyone is playing it straight except for the one and maybe Kristen wig sometimes mm-hmm. is like a little too weird but yeah, yeah, very odd. This is all pre-bridesmaids, right? So even mm. Kristen yeah. Wiig hadn't established I herself think that as they don't you know what she quite is. know what to do with her at, yeah. at times. Like now we know very well what her thing is, and she gets to do it sometimes here. But yeah, it, it's interesting to see that they don't quite yet know her deal. <laughs> the best scene of the movie is her getting coffee dressed as him. That is yes. easily my favorite scene. I think it's yes. very funny. I think she's <laughs> yes. great at it. They're and laying make, on the keep, ground screaming. Making her dress as him. Yeah. <laughs> Taking back the tip is very funny. Yeah. Can I help you? Can I have a small latte? No, no, no. McGruber would never order that. I'm all about the large Tazo tea. I'm sorry. Sorry, can I change that? Um, can I get a large Tazo tea? Sure. Anything else? No. No! But she's also another person, and I think SNL's like this in general, right? Where, like, you either really get her humor or you don't. And, like, her stuff, mm. like, when she's on, like, Barb and Star is bonkers. But, like, yeah. my it. favorite sketch of hers is Liza Minnelli turns on a lamp. And I sure. do not know why I think that <laughs> sketch is so funny, but something about it just kills me. Yeah. She, her facial expression is like, I will go down Dunice rabbit holes like every mm. six months. And it's that whole character is just big forehead, tiny hands. But yeah. she yeah. makes it hysterical week after week after week. And it's the same like in when she in the coffee shop, when she can hear the van getting shot up and she's losing <laughs> her. just screaming. So fun. Even then when it all stops and she's getting up, like I was watching, she does this little thing with her feet as she's getting and it's like so her whole body is in selling this idea of this woman has just gone crazy in you know getting a cup of tea and it's Mm -hmm. everything about it is so funny it's her physicality and her commitment to everything and her facial expressions like she's uh, she's a genius I also think they didn't know what to do with this movie in general for the marketing, which I also think is the issue with all of the late 90s, early uh, through the 2000s SNL movies. Like they weren't totally sure where to market them. And also SNL wasn't really the same cultural juggernaut juggernaut throughout that time. It Mm -hmm. kind of is here because you are seeing, you know, people like um, uh, Bill Hader and Seth Meyers and like all of those people like go on and obviously, but like we're past the Jimmy Fallon phase. We're past Tina Fey. Mm -hmm. And so there's like the weird lull where they kind of, Mm -hmm. they always have that, that weird lull where they kind of figure out what the new chemistry is. And then it's also like an interesting, it's, I think it's like, like a rebuilding time for SNL because like for, for instance, if you look at the cast now, they're they're much more similar in age. Mm. And this was a weird era where Kristen Wiig is, is actually quite a bit older. Kate McKinnon had the same thing where like they had relatively significant careers prior to. But yeah, like if you think like Kate uh, or uh, Kristen Wiig and Cecily Strong are like that's like a 10 year age difference. And so it's this kind of unusual thing, but it means you have a somebody who is like hitting home runs constantly because <laughs> they are much more a pro, a seasoned person who understands their comedic deal. Yeah. It's, and then Daryl Hammond was just their dad. Sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who they were keeping alive by employing. And then, yes, then he finally got the spot of announcer and now he's he's OK. Well, let's talk a bit about the weird Super Bowl ad thing. Cam, you brought this up a little bit. Do you know what happened here? It's really, it's weird and complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. I tried to read a whole long thing about it. So they made a Super Bowl ad that it seems like they they got close to the Super Bowl and then Pepsi started freaking out. And then Lauren Michaels was like, well, if you're not going to play our Super Bowl ad, we're going to play it as an ad during SNL. So then it like deflated the Super Bowl premiere of the ad. 
but the ad made no sense in the context of just because people thought it was an SNL sketch, even though it was actually an ad for Pepsi. So what happened was, is that Pepsi came to Lauren Michaels to do, we want to do an SNL tie-in in general for the Super Bowl. Like, that's mm-hmm. the thing. And Lauren Michaels would be like, well, you got to do McGruber because McGruber is the greatest. That's what we do. So they developed the idea of the three, the same thing where it escalates. So by the end of the la- the third one, which is how all the McGruber w- things work, is the escalation in three little chunks. And the last one um, is literally just Will Forte with like Pepsi can strapped to his hands and he's yeah, covered it was like in Pepsi more swag. and more um, exactly. product placement and he's just it screaming got more and more the word shameless. Pepsi exactly yes. over and over again which is how the last one and goes. the final when they... one was Pepsuber instead yes. of <laughs> McGruber so when they aired this during <laughs> SNL people were like what the fuck are we looking at yeah. like what why is this segment sponsored by Pepsi this is really weird and then when they did the Super Bowl ad they only showed the second segment they didn't show all three oh, I so That's what happened. So it didn't make any sense whatsoever. People were like, what is going on? But they got their water cooler talkers. People were like, what the fuck is going on? It helped them get the movie. Yeah. And apparently, yeah, yeah, apparently Lauren Michaels was like, that was a disaster, but I think I can get us the movie right now. (laughs) We like do it right now, right now, which is like. That's how he works. uh, And you got to respect it. This is where executives and money people are the problem. Mm hmm. Because just you wanted an SNL thing, let them do what they do and have confidence in it. uh, And they don't. You know what I I mean? Yeah, I do think it ruined, again, reading between the lines. So that those Pepsuber ads featured Richard Dean. Pepsuber. (laughs) (laughs) Featured Richard Dean Anderson as like a friend of McGruber's. Uh, and but they say that in the movie it was supposed to be that the guy driving that car that cut him off that drove him insane was Richard Dean Anderson. Uh, and I wonder if they didn't get him because he did the Pepsuber and it was such a disaster that he was like, I'm good. I've done my McGruber. Yeah, no, he has to bad. come back. He has to yeah. come back. Like it's it's here's a question for you guys. Why do we think Ryan Phillippe did this movie? Uh, he wasn't doing anything else. No, yeah. he's a fan. I, I mean, I'm assuming <laughs> yeah, that that it. is kind of it because, uh, well, it shocks me, to be honest with you, that he likes it. And I, I know I think... there wasn't like a ton going on for him, but it feels like a re- a, a weird one for him. If you hear that, the, again, there's like a pretty good oral history. And if you read it, they bought, brought in Kilmer and Philippi just as like guys that they thought were good versions of that. A casting director brought them in for a table read and both of them just loved the table read and immediately were like, yeah, I want to do this movie. A- and Val Kilmer like says very interesting things. Like he's like, uh, he essentially says that he was super in love with Kristen Wiig and the thought of being mean to Kristen Wiig delighted him. <laughs> so that was like part of what <laughs> okay. he liked. Okay. Uh, but he said, I could hardly hardly speak to her in real life my um, favorite piece of yeah. trivia with Val Kilmer though is that he and Will Forte became best friends to the point mm. where when Val Kilmer was looking for a place to live uh, in LA he moved in with Will Forte for a few months and the two of them became obsessed with the amazing race to the point where they were going to apply as a team like <laughs> just like yeah. I want that I would I would have I love the universe where that happens I I want that so bad I want that so bad. I and I love them together. And also, yeah, you know what? Uh, Val Kilmer can be mean to me anytime he wants. I, I like I love everything about that. And I think that like over the years, right? Because we got this idea of Val Kilmer. Like, yeah, he started in comedy, but then you know he took himself real seriously for a long time. And we kind of had this idea of he's this brooding, you know, pretty you know i think i'm a serious actor guy and so to come back in this movie and just be a joy like and he seems like he's having fun you know what i mean i think that a lot of self-awareness came after the fallout of the late uh, mid to late 90s with what was going on with like Mm. island of dr moreau and i think he got a big dose of yeah i think he got a big dose of reality and it seems i read an article recently like a profile picture of him when his documentary was coming out Mm -hmm. um where it really talked about how he had found a lot of like calm and self-awareness through understanding you know where his career went and and his time with his family and and this is all pre-diagnosis of his uh of his cancer of Mm -hmm. course but yeah it's real it's interesting that the his journey of self-awareness yeah he's also somebody who i think yeah uh loves comedy in a weird Mm -hmm. way like i think he just likes comedy 
Well, and I think it's devastating to me when I think about it now, like ha- having lost his voice and stuff like that, because mm. I think this would be a really fertile time for him to just have fun and have one of those amazing sort of, uh, you know, late later in life comebacks. And uh, I feel like we're missing so much good stuff. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, Val Kilmer, uh, he's probably... Go like he's he's got a lot to deal with, mm. but yeah, I do feel like it's it kind of sucks for all of us. Yeah, and when you that, look at like when you talk about Billy Zane kind of taking over that role, mm-hmm. he he's having a great comeback. I think lately, where you're just like, Ugh. yeah, Billy Zane is great, and whatever he does is good. And yeah, Val Kilmer would totally fit into that. Also, mm-hmm. the very funny where they talk about. Like they're making this stupid movie, and uh, meanwhile, Val Kilmer and Powers Booth are like talking about being on Unforgiven, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you guys are real actors." <laughs> like, oh, we have two uh, classic uh, geniuses here. Yeah, Powers Booth is so incredible, and I think like this movie, uh, this role is not foreign for him, right? And he's no. very much yeah. a straight man, and very much like this is in keeping with sort of the kind of thing he does, but it's still super fun that he's in this movie. I think this also speaks to the strength of Yorma Takone as a director, Mm. is he knew what he was making and he knew how to direct it because Powers Booth was like in the scene where the Will Forte character MacGruber is like, just like, I will suck your dick, like just all the profanities (laughs) at, at Powers Booth. Powers Booth was like, how do you want me to play this? Like, what am I supposed to respond? And he was like, like, it is the saddest thing you've ever seen. Like, play it straight, 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 and just let him do his thing. Yeah. And it's like, 100%, that's how that yeah. joke works. That's how you play yes. it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I love, uh, yeah, Yarma Takone has the weird uh, power couple. He's married to Mariel Heller. The, Who like, is driving the director. car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Mariel yeah. Heller, of course, from Can You Ever Forgive Me? She's, uh, yeah, so it's kind of fascinating. And I mean, I've, I always find Yarma Takone very interesting, too, because if you remember the old Lonely Island, he was the handsome star. Yes. Andy Samberg was the goofy looking guy. And then they just did a swap because I think Yorma wanted to direct more. That, <laughs> so but also, like, yeah. Andy Samberg, I find exponentially more charming than Yorma is. Yes. Like, Yorma mm. is like yes. conventionally better mm. looking, but Andy Samberg is a star and charming yeah. as hell. Like, I, I think that's, he's got the personality. Agree. He just shines. Yeah. 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 It's, I think that's just how All that right. works. Just saying. To each their own, I guess. (laughs) I do have to say, Yorma Takone, of that time, his um, spot that he did with Bill Hader. And again, this is that lightning in a bottle, Lonely Island thing where they just understand how a joke works and keep doing it with him dancing to whoever the guest was as hard as he can. And then Bill Hader just sort of looking at the camera and shaking his head of like... This guy killed me every time. So funny. It's like, that's how you use both of those actors and their energy. So good. Can I give a brief shout out? I know we're loving on MacGruber, but... (laughs) Uh, pop star, never stop, never stop it. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it's another one. Yeah, that just and didn't I would, go I would underrated. say. I, I I do as much as I'm loving on MacGruber. I do think that MacGruber is a kind of a shaggy movie, and it, it's a mm-hmm. weird thing where they will they will spend a full straight scene to get to one joke, which is a bit yeah. like, come on. Uh, <laughs> but I do feel like Popstar is where they really hit their peak. Where like that's a movie that is funny end to end, and yes. you can put on in front of just about anybody, and they like it. Whereas I think Hot Rod and, and uh, MacGruber is a bit more of a experiment in comedy, yeah. mm-hmm. and I well, think they'd say the same it's thing. Also, this is not a wide release movie. Like, like this had it been released yeah. on streaming would have done the numbers that oh, it needed yeah. to do. So when it hit, it was the lowest grossing SNL wide release ever, which is saying a lot when you think about stuff like yeah. it's Pat and the ladies man. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, I think it's Pat um, might have been straight to video. It was Our pulled. Stuart in, saved yeah. his family. Yeah. It was that's pulled horrifying. In, it was yeah. pulled in three weeks. I will say and it was the yeah. second biggest flop of the year. Like when it we t- was when we bad. talk about the other big problem of the 2010s, kind of killing comedy, is nothing has legs. Comedy yeah. is mm. so much like if you guys remember, and maybe you don't, maybe you do, something like Office Space. Yes. Office Space was a massive failure, but then even in theaters had legs and went on for months and months. And then in VHS became like a cult thing. It's like, yeah, there's no room for cult comedy 
off of streaming and there's no streaming yet particularly like streaming right. is not there in 2010 so yeah. they are just killing and that's the thing it's like they kill everything actually we didn't talk about kick-ass is kind of a fascinating one where it, it was a modest hit but yeah matthew vaughn says that he was like fuck yeah we made 91 uh, million dollars in april no ip like nobody knows any of the stars their internal or johnson really isn't anyone yet uh, and they were like sorry for your failure matthew and he's like what i <laughs> so made I my, I I doubled my budget opening yeah. He's like, like, I'm literally getting trucks of money. And they're like, no, no, it was a failure. I'm sorry. Because the expectations were so high of what that movie is. Like they wanted a 40, 50 million dollar kind of like return. And it didn't quite get that. But even then, like it's it made its budget back and more. So but if it's not at that time, those astronomical hits, it just doesn't mean anything. And it's even more now. Like, I think if you don't make 100 million, you're just nothing. So, yeah, it's it's kind of wild. That you can make something like, and yeah, it made, yeah, again, uh, MacGruber made like nine million on a ten million budget, but it still doesn't. That's like a devastating failure. And I don't think have they made an SNL movie since? I don't think they have. I don't think so. No. I think that might no. be the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's also like I don't know. I, I I can't think of a regular character that you would <laughs> make say, one out of. Uh, David S. Pumpkins. S. Pumpkins was literally oh, the only thing God, I was thinking awful. of. But Never yeah, mind. but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right, I'm ending it here, my friends. Okay. <laughs> so, Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, thank you guys for fun movies to watch. Oh, yes, comedies. Thank God. <laughs> this it's been it's been fun this uh, this 2010. Let me tell you, Allison Dore. Thank you so much for joining us for the first, but hopefully not the last time. Thank you so much for having me. Also, yeah, when you told me what two movies we were watching, I literally almost cried. It's, this is <laughs> the greatest ever. It was an email with a bunch of exclamation points in capital letters. And I was I like, did. oh, I see. Yes, <laughs> this is fabulous. Now, Allison, tell people how they can hear more of you and see kind of what you're doing in the world. So Monday to Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern, you can find me on Sirius XM channel 167 as uh, the host of The Breakdown with Allison Dore. And uh, I also run a comedy record label called Howl and Roar Records. You can go to howlandroarrecords.com or follow us on socials at howl underscore roar. And it is very funny. You've got some really great people on your label that I always enjoy. Like, because if I'm always like, okay, I need someone new to make me chuckle, I'm like, who's Allison? and gotten a roster and like you got no duds man you got no duds that's so nice thank (laughs) you my my pleasure Uh, all right listeners and you can join us in two weeks where we are going classic coming of age with boy and submarine that's coming up in two weeks thanks for joining us for this episode of the a year in film podcast from hollywood suite if you enjoyed the show please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform find us on facebook instagram twitter at hollywood suite Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Cameron Maitland and Allison Dore as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs>